0: we just heard the words of Jesus as told to us in the gospel of Matthew and I don't know about you but some here may have felt like saying amen upon hearing those words but if you're like me you chose a different word in response to what Jesus said whoa are you serious right now because I heard the part that everybody likes, and I've heard sermons on before, and lots of people talk about. Jesus says, like, consider how cheap the sparrows are. After all, sparrows in Jesus' day were not expensive to buy, and they were considered food. Go ahead, consider the sparrows. God is concerned with even if sparrow falls from the sky, and yet that same God knows the number of hairs on your head. So if God feels this way about the sparrows, imagine how God feels about you. Now, if the story stopped there, I would stand up and cheer and say, Amen. Not just once, but a thousand times, right? And I would be happy to say, Amen. And I've heard all sorts of sermons on this very topic talking about how much it's important to acknowledge how much God loves you. And then Jesus wraps this up by saying, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before Abba God in heaven. And it's here that sermons end with, let's close with prayer. But then, if you keep reading, the only response that seems to be appropriate in today's day and age is, whoa, Jesus, what are you doing? Because Jesus says some things that, frankly, I disagree with. And a question arises when you consider what that means. What do we do as Christians when Jesus Christ says something that we disagree with? Now upon hearing this out loud, a church, a traditional church, may hear us saying this and say, whoa, Craig, you need to slow down. And while it may make us uncomfortable to say even this question, which is what do we do when we disagree with something that Jesus says, maybe we could modify it so that everybody could come along. What do we do when Jesus Christ says something we want to disagree with, right? Because Jesus says some things that are very hard for us to process and even to agree with. Well, to answer that question, I want to ask six questions, and this is the entire sermon outline for anybody who can't wait for this thing to be over already. Question number one is, what is the Bible? We're going to look at that in depth. What does Jesus actually say? Question number three is, what is the context surrounding the words of Jesus? Question number four is, what is a scenario in which these words might be helpful? Number five is, what if Jesus was really human, like really, really human? And then question number six, so what? We're going to go through each of these questions and look at these words of Jesus because they are difficult for us to read today, and yet I still think it's helpful to talk about them. So let's begin with question number one. What is the Bible? I have been a pastor now for over a decade, and I have kept the same definition of the Bible now for a decade. I have found this definition to be very helpful to me through a lot of changes personally, emotionally, theologically, And I'm going to share my definition of what the Bible is with you in just a few moments. But before we get there, I want to encourage anyone who identifies as a Christian to be able to answer that question. What is it that you think the Bible is? And if anyone were to ask you as a Christian, what role does the Bible play in your life, you should be able to answer For me, the definition I use for the Bible is the Bible is 100% accurate in the way some people perceived and understood God throughout multiple generations. This definition has lasted me over a decade, and it has met a lot of different demands, and I still stand by this definition. Now, you may have a different definition. That's more than fine. But this is how I understand the Bible and how it's been helpful to me. And while this may define what the Bible is, it doesn't really talk about why we have the Bible within our spiritual journeys. A way to ask that question is, why do we read, study, and discuss the Bible on a regular basis? For that, I'm going to defer to an expert, a man named Dr. Peter Enns, who teaches at Eastern University in Pennsylvania, he wrote several books that have been very influential to me, and one that I'm going to quote from is the, the, the book that came out in 2019 called How the Bible Actually Works. In the intro, this is just the intro, he says something that I have found to be very helpful about the Bible. He says, rather than providing us with information to be downloaded, the Bible holds out for us an invitation to join an ancient, well-traveled, and sacred quest to know God the world we live in, and our place in it. Not just abstractly, but intimately and experientially. He then goes on a paragraph or two later to say, that quest is summed up in one beautiful, deep, too often neglected, but absolutely central and liberating biblical idea that shapes everything I have to say in this book. In other words, he says, I can save you a lot of time. You can just skip the rest of the book. Let me tell you one word that what is what the Bible is supposed to be. And that word is wisdom. The Bible exists to help us grow in wisdom. And when we have this definition and we consider that the purpose of the Bible is to help us to grow, lead us into greater wisdom, you start to realize how the Bible can be helpful to us today. Because the Bible has nothing to say about artificial intelligence, right? Yet... What the Bible does have something to say about is how people long time ago saw a technological revolution that changed the way they perceived reality and all of a sudden they were having anxiety about it. Specifically, bricks. Bricks came along and really threatened an ancient people saying like what does this mean? We can build towers to heaven. Oh my gosh, are we like God now? No. But you see how this whole pattern unfolds, and how people process their anxiety. Another major technological revolution that occurs in the Bible is bronze. And what happens when another nation has that technology, weapon, has bronze? How do you act as a country, as a people, when you don't have the military advantage? While the Bible has nothing to say about climate change, the Bible has a lot to say about all sorts of military opponents who are breathing down the neck of their very survival. And it is almost guaranteed that they aren't going to live past this generation. And so they say to themselves, how do we live in the shadow of this overwhelming anxiety? And this wisdom has been passed on to us. And while it's, things have changed and while slight things have changed here and there, it ultimately is giving us the wisdom of how to live with this anxiety. I don't know what political party you identify with, everyone's welcome here, but I guarantee you at some point you have had anxiety about whoever is in the White House, right? There are a lot of people in the Bible that write about what happens when they have a king on the throne that they don't really like. How do you live when your people aren't in power? And there's a lot that Christians can learn about what that means and what that looks like. And so when we talk about the Bible and we have this idea that it's there to help us grow in wisdom, I have found over the years that the best approach to the Bible is a posture of curiosity. And when I start to feel like I'm in trouble or Jesus says something that makes me uncomfortable, I try to put that anxiety to rest and I say, okay, let's see what this actually means. So what do we do when Jesus Christ says something we want to disagree with? Well, we let go of our fear and judgment, and then we embrace our curiosity. Why does this make me uncomfortable? What is it about these words that rubs me the wrong way? Now, I don't know if you know this, but this can actually help you a lot for everyone you disagree with. Instead of just saying, oh, well, with Jesus, I can approach Jesus this way, but everybody else, well, I'll cling to my fear and judgment toward them. That's not what this is about. This is helpful for anyone we disagree with. So that moves the question from what is the Bible to question number two. What does Jesus actually say here? Well, Jesus talks about this grand, transcendent, and intimate love from God. And then from there, he takes a hard left and says these words. Don't suppose that I came to bring peace on earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Sounds a bit like Napoleon Bonaparte to me here. But why would Jesus say something like this? Not only that, but I read these words, and it doesn't sound like the Jesus that I know. Particularly, I think of the 66 books of the Bible. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. I go back to a reference that a lot of Christians love. It's in the book of Isaiah, the first of the major prophets. Now, Isaiah is writing about a king named Hezekiah that has just been born. And as he is writing, he writes these words, For a child has been born for us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Christians saw these words written about a king named Hezekiah, and they said, Oh, he's also talking about Jesus. This is who Jesus should be, a Prince of Peace. Which is strange when you consider these words, Don't suppose that I came to bring peace on earth. These may not be the best words for the Prince of Peace uh, to say it out loud, huh? Not only that, but he keeps going right after this. He says, I have come to turn a son against his father, a daughter against her mother, in-law against in-law. God, one's enemies will be the members of one's own household. Whew. Is that what you came to do, Jesus? Can you imagine people stand up in front of church, they say, you know, guys, I gave my life to Christ, and my family hated me. I was on the right path, everybody. And yet, that's what Jesus claims to do. Now, what's really interesting is you'll notice that these are words are in quotes, and it's because Jesus is actually quoting another passage of Scripture. If you go back to our table of all the books of the Bible, he's quoting the prophet Micah, who is a country bumpkin. Micah lives out in the sticks, and he has some opinions about how the people in the city live, if you can imagine that kind of political dichotomy, right? So Micah goes to the cities, and he just starts decides to start prophesying. And he goes there to them, and he says, it is so depraved here in the city. Everything is wrong. Everything is backwards. So his warning to the people that are living in the city to show how much they've fallen are these words. Don't trust your friends. Don't rely on your loved ones. Be careful of what you say to the one who lies in your embrace. For son treats father with contempt. Daughter defies mother. Daughters-in-law battle mothers-in-law. Your enemies are your own household. In other words, Micah looks at the city and says, you want to know how far you've fallen? Sons are, hold contempt against fathers. Daughters defy mothers. This is awful. We have lost our way as a city. Come back to holding an orderly household. Now, this is really surprising because when Jesus comes along and says, let me tell you who I am. I'm the guy who's supposed to upset everything and lead us into depravity, according to Micah. This is a backwards statement where Jesus read these words of Micah at some point or heard these words and said, you know what? I want to be that guy. Now, this is really stunning when you consider that the Bible is a big book. And Jesus decided to quote Micah when there were lots of other books to quote. Something like the book of Exodus, which you all know has the Ten Commandments in there, the fifth commandment of which it says, Honor your mother and your father so that you may have a long life in the land that Yahweh has given to you. Jesus knew that this verse existed, he knew that this verse in Micah existed. And between the two, he said, you know what I am more like? I'm more like Micah, which is strange to think about because this is not something I want to have in my own life. Jesus goes on to say one more thing that's problematic. He says, those who love mother or father, daughter or son more than me are not worthy of me. If you want to take parenting advice from Jesus, apparently you got to make sure that your kids really don't like you so that they're never in competition with their love for God, right? In other words, when I take my kids to Universal Studios, I'm messing with their eternal destiny, right? And I know, like my kids, they were so happy at Universal Studios. And on the car, on the way back, they said, Daddy, I I just want you to know I love you. And I was like, is this because I took you to Universal Studios? And they said, yes, Daddy. (laughs) Of course it is. And when it comes to going to Universal Studios, if we take this very literally, the more I do this, the more I become in competition with who God is. And Jesus wants to state very clearly, hey, you're in a competition. Anyone who loves their parents more than me isn't worthy of me. That's tough, huh? In fact, it's so tough that when you think about what love is, this feels like it is anti-love to me. And when I consider what else is written in the Bible about love, I come across the apostle John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, who wrote one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture when he said, Beloved, let us love one another because love is of God and everyone who loves is begotten of God and has knowledge of God. In other words, he says, when you love your dad, you know who God is. When you love your mom, you know who God is. And what's really bizarre about this is that the Apostle John sounds a lot more like Jesus than Jesus does in these two passages, right? In this passage, Jesus says things that are anti-peace, anti-family, and anti-love. And when I say to myself, is it really something I want to say in front of people that I disagree with Jesus on this, we have to go back to what it is that we do when Jesus says something that we want to disagree with. Well, I think it's important what we do is that we clarify what Jesus specifically said and then see if we still disagree with his words. To which I would say, I do. I'm pro peace, I'm pro family, and I'm pro love. Now, I can say that very clearly because I went back and made sure I got every word right, that I read it thoroughly, and I wanted to make sure that I respected what Jesus said, even though I disagreed with it. This also is good for practice for anyone that we disagree with. To make sure that you honor them by getting their words exactly right and not just saying like, oh, they said something like this. What is it that the person you disagree with specifically said and what is it that you disagree with? Which moves us from question two to question three. What is the context surrounding the words of Jesus? Well, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago in a place called Judea. The capital was Jerusalem. About 60 miles to the north was a place called Galilee, where Jesus did most of his ministry and his life and his teachings. While he is in Galilee, he has 12 disciples with him, and he's sending these disciples out to go out and tell people that the kingdom of heaven is near. And so as he is telling them to go out, we would assume that Jesus is going to tell the disciples, go out in the towns and tell everyone to repent from their wicked ways. Or Jesus might say, go out and tell everyone that they need to go to church more. But that's not what Jesus does. In fact, if you look at all of Matthew 10, he doesn't say anything about the people that they're going to do to go speak to as far as their behavior or what they need to change. He only talks to these disciples about what the disciples need to change. The great Richard Rohrer points out, Jesus' words in Matthew 10 are designed to change the disciples much more than that it was meant for them to change others. And when you consider that, you realize that these disciples were not going to unknown parts of the country. They were going home to their own towns with all of their relatives and all of their friends. And the disciples were being asked to go to their own towns and declare the reign of heaven is drawn near. Now, I don't know if you can imagine this, But imagine you go to people who have always viewed you as a little kid, and you say, hey, I've got some good news about God. And this older person looks at you and says, you're going to tell me about God now? I was there when you were born. And so when you look at how these words impact these disciples as they're about to go out into their own towns among people they know, these words start to make a little bit more sense. And when we ask the question, what do we do when Jesus Christ says something we disagree with? The first thing or the third thing that we can do here is empathize. While I may disagree with the words that were said, I can empathize with why they were said, right? By the way, this is also a very good practice for everyone we disagree with. If somebody says something you disagree with, try to empathize with them and understand why they said it. Which moves us from question three to question four. What is a scenario in which these words might be helpful? I've been a pastor for over 10 years. For the first five or six years of my career, I got the same question over and over again. It was by far the most commonly asked question that I've ever had as a pastor. It was, Craig, tell me how you can be a Christian pastor and support same-sex marriage. After five or six years though, those questions started to recede and a new question started to come forward. I don't know if people just gave up on me or if they figured out I wasn't gonna change my mind, I'm not sure, but around the time we started Paradox Church, there was this other question that came forward, and it's a question that I get asked more today than any other theological question in the Bible. That question is, what do your parents think about all this? (laughs) This whole church and everything, what what do they think about it? You know how I answer it? They're right over there. Why don't you go ask them? And I point that out. Because I have parents who are great and I love them. No ifs, ands, or buts. I absolutely love my parents. I feel lucky to have them. Now, we can imagine a multiverse world where this doesn't go so smoothly when I tell my mom and dad, hey, I think I think God's calling me to start a church. We can imagine that when I say that, my mom or my dad in an alternate universe says, What? Who told you that? Well, God did. That's not God. Okay, okay, right? And the reason so many people ask me this question is because they can imagine in their own experience about how it would work if they told their parents what would what it would be like if they were going to go start a church, right? So I point all of this out because we can imagine a world that is quite different than this and... When I look back at my life, while there have been so much support from my parents from day one for this church, there have been other moments that, you know, have been a little tough, primarily brought on by me, you know? And what it teaches us about life is that in order to become who God created you to be, at some point, you will have to step away from your traditions, your past, and your parents. At some point, you're going to have to take a step away and be the person who God created you to be. No one understands this better than the Walt Disney Company, right? Every animated movie involves what? Dead parents, right? Go out, be your own person. I don't want to. Oh, your parents are dead. Oh, well, the movie can start now. This happens so frequently. I'm so trained at this that I saw Raya and the Last Dragon. The dad, her dad said three positive words as his first three lines, and I was like, oh, he's dead. He's not making it. And sure enough, it was not much longer before her dad died. Now, why do I point this out? It's because it's one way to get the story going forward, right? But this is the story of what it means to be human. And let's be honest, there are healthy and unhealthy ways to do this, right? There are healthy ways to say, I've got to do this for me. I feel called to being this. I can't ignore this, mom and dad. Or you go to your tradition and say like, I know you say it's wrong, but I know it's right. There are healthy and unhealthy ways to do this on both sides, right? And when you consider these disciples and what they were doing, you can imagine them going to their own towns with all their aunties and uncles. And you can imagine that Jesus is saying to them, hey, look, you may have some aunties and uncles who are upset with you for sharing what you have found to be true. And when you proclaim the kingdom of heaven is near, they may say like, who are you to tell me that? Jesus said to them, you know what? I want to tell you, keep going, right? Keep proclaiming the gospel. Do not allow them to cut you down in that moment. This is the last Saturday of Pride Month, right? Happy Pride to everyone. And to all who talk about what Pride is and when it comes to coming out and all the stories that move our souls and stir our senses, these are all stories about people who had to take a risky conversation with parents, with friends, with traditions, and say, this is who God has created me to be. And there are happy stories and stories in which we celebrate, and there are other stories in which our hearts fall out of our chest when a parent says, how could you do this to me? To them, Jesus, I believe, would say, keep going. So what do we do when Jesus Christ says something we want to disagree with? Well, I would say imagine scenarios in which the words you disagree with might be helpful. Think about how this may not apply to my situation, but to other people, that's maybe exactly what they need to hear in their situation. By the way, this is an excellent practice for everyone we disagree with. If you're coming across somebody you disagree with, and you can't understand why they're saying what they're saying, start imagining scenarios in which the words they say could be helpful. And it may be nowhere near your own personal experience, but it's worth trying to walk a mile in their shoes in order to come to some sort of understanding. Which moves us from question four to question five. What if Jesus was really human? Christians believe that Jesus was fully God and fully human. And what I have found is that Christians tend to overemphasize the fully God part and underemphasize the really human part. And so when it comes to these words, I have come to turn a son against his father, a daughter against her mother, in-law against in-law, one's enemies will be the members of one's own household. A question arises that is worth asking. Is this the only time that Jesus talked about family? Well, the answer is no. No. In Matthew 15, a few chapters to the right, we read that Jesus is speaking to some religious folks, and the religious folks are like, hey, how come your disciples don't follow the religious rules? Like, we're following them because we're good religious folks. Why don't your disciples do the same thing? And Jesus replied, and why do you violate the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your mother and father, and those who curse your mother and father must be put to death. Well, that's a stark change from what Jesus said in Matthew 10, right? He also speaks about parents in Matthew 19. A rich young ruler comes to him and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, the rich young ruler says, I don't got time for that. Which ones do you want me to keep? Because I can't keep them all. And so Jesus says, no killing, no committing adultery, no stealing, no bearing false witness. Honor your parents, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, this is quite different from what we experienced in Matthew 10, right? Which raises the question, what changed from chapter 10 to chapters 15 and 19? Well, I would point to Matthew chapter 12. It's here that Jesus is speaking to a crowd, and the way that it's set up is that it's a crowd that's indoors. So Jesus is speaking to people, and his family stood outside, and his family wanted to speak with him. Now, someone inside said to Jesus, hey, your mother and your kin are standing outside, and they are anxious to speak with you. To which Jesus said, who is my mother? Who are my kin? He then turns to the messenger and says, pointing to the disciples, this is my family, Whoever does the will of Abba God in heaven is my sister and brother and mother. And from there, Matthew keeps telling the story. But let's pause for a moment and imagine what happens right after that. Because at some point, the messenger has to go back to Mary and the siblings and say, Hey, the guy who you nursed to health, you gave birth to, has said that he doesn't know who his mother is anymore. He's also said, like, I've already got a family, and it's right here. And while that works in Fast and Furious movies, it doesn't work so well with, you know, real family. I can imagine that this messenger goes back to Mary, and she is hurt by these words deeply, right? She goes back, she hears these words that Jesus says, who is my mother? My family's right here. Now, we can imagine just a little bit more about what happened. One of my favorite biblical scholars today is a woman named Dr. Will Gaffney, and she talks about the value of filling in the gaps between the story. So while the story of Matthew cuts away at this point, we can spend time imagining the humanity of all that unfolded after this because it's worthwhile to bring the human element to the story. It's all good to do, she says, as long as you clarify when you're imagining something and when you're reading from the text. And so the phrase that she uses to introduce what her imagination is, is she'll say, in my sanctified imagination, and she'll finish stories that way, right? And so when I think of this story and this messenger going back to Mary and saying, hey, Jesus doesn't want to see you, and he said he's got another family, in my sanctified imagination, what happens is Mary then tells Jesus that his words hurt her feelings, It may have been a chapter later, it may have been right away, it may have been a long time later, but I can imagine this scene unfolding, right? And you can imagine that Jesus, the Son of God, hears his mother weeping about all the hurt that he's caused her with these words that, you know, I'm with Mary on this one, and he takes it in, and what does Jesus do? Well, I imagine that Jesus then apologizes to his mother, and then he changes his behavior. And when you look at the way this gospel unfolds after chapter 12, Jesus only has positive things to say about parents after saying some pretty negative things before chapter 12. So what do we do when Jesus Christ says something that we want to disagree with? Well, I think that we have to lean into his humanity, and part of being human means we grow and develop as human beings. So I think that one way we can do this is we can give him space to grow as a human being. Now, I know that some people feel uncomfortable when we talk about Jesus apologizing or Jesus saying, I'm sorry, but if Jesus is fully human, he at some point has to learn how to say, I'm sorry, doesn't he? I mean, that's a critical part of being human in today's life, and I would assume back in Jesus' day as well. And so if we allow Jesus' space to grow and see him as a human being, also fully God, Well, then, this makes sense to me. And I can imagine Jesus saying, Yes, I said that back then, but I no longer say that because I realize how much it can hurt someone else. This sounds like someone who is fully divine and fully human to me. By the way, this is a great practice for everyone who you disagree with. Give them space to grow. Do not hold them to their worst moment. Instead, say to yourself, Are they growing? Are they changing? Are they trying to process this out loud? Because often the answer is yes. Give the people you disagree with space to grow. Which brings us to the sixth and final question. So what? We've talked about this for length. What does this mean? Does it have any value for us today? Well, I have to tell you that when I look at the Bible and I look at the contrast between what Jesus says with, I'm here to turn son against father and mother against daughter, And I think about Exodus chapter 20 that says, Honor your father and mother so your days may be long in the land that I give you. I much prefer for my kids to adopt Exodus chapter 20. I would love it if they honored their mother and father, right? Not just for today, but for years, decades, and the rest of Kimmy and our lives. We both want this for them. But can I tell you a secret? We can't control that. That's not up to us. But you know what we can control? Well, we have a relationship with our parents. And while one of them is no longer with us, it reminds us that all we can control is how we behave, not how someone else behaves, right? And when I hear parents talk about how they want their kids to treat them as they grow older, the question becomes, yeah, but do you treat your parents that way now? You should always treat others the way you want to be treated. And when I think about this generational advice that comes out in the contrast between Exodus 20 and Matthew 10, the thing that comes to mind is, oh, we have to remind ourselves that we have to keep this first and then hope that others will follow. But it's up to them. So what do we do when Jesus Christ says something we want to disagree with? Well, we engage the discussion that started, and then we learn from it. And I will tell you, every disagreement has a learning opportunity somewhere. It doesn't mean you have to learn from it right away, but eventually there will be something that you can take from it in order to become a more loving person. And you've probably guessed this by now, but my friends, this is a great practice for people you disagree with. Because we all have people we disagree with, right? And I think about Christians who should be really good at disagreeing with people and still loving them. And sometimes I wonder if part of the problem is, that there's this sense that if you even raise a question as to what Jesus says, that you're somehow betraying the faith. Well, to that, I would say, look at the life of Jesus and realize that when people asked him questions, he would often respond with more questions. When he had the opportunity to give clear and certain answers and to say, you need to agree with this, Jesus said, what do you think it is? Jesus embraces our humanity and makes space for us to disagree and be thoughtfully engaged with life rather than us following blindly what he says. And when it comes to disagreeing with people today, my friends, I think that we can do a lot better job than we're doing today. Together, may I say this to you, may we grow in love for the ones we disagree with. May you read the Bible with a never-ending curiosity and discover wisdom. May you become a more empathetic person May your imagination be vivid as you seek understanding of others. May you treat those who are older than you the way you wish those who are younger than you treated you. And may you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, even in the difficult words of Jesus Christ. Amen.